as we've been studying through the minor prophets of the Old Testament, there's 12 of them. If you've studied the Bible before, or if you've been in church before, you might be wondering, there's a lot of doom and gloom in these guys. And you might be wondering, which one of these guys is just going to talk about the end of the world? Like, which one of these guys is just going to say, let's just blow it up? What does it look like? What happens? Because there's so much doom and gloom going on. Does any of these guys just come out and say we're all doomed? And Because and, that's kind of what the minor prophets, they have some good things to say. We've been exploring those things, and that's been exciting and encouraging, especially when we can look at how they're used in the New Testament. It really helps when we get to filter the message of the minor prophets through their application in the New Testament. But does anyone just come out and say the world's going to end and it's going to be bad? The answer is yes. Yes, there is. And it's, it's Zephaniah. This guy is about as depressing as you want to be. When you're feeling like just being really good and depressed about how things are going, just turn to the book of Zephaniah, and there's three chapters there that will make you purely miserable. This is what Zephaniah is kind of all about. How miserable is Zephaniah? He's so miserable that he's not actually directly quoted in the New Testament. He's one of the few minor prophets, uh, along with Obadiah, I believe, is the other one. That is alluded to in the New Testament, but he's not actually quoted in the New Testament. Now, what's interesting is that when you're talking about the end of the world, and we're going to look at the metaphor that Zephaniah uses to describe what that is. When you're talking about the literal end of the world, uh, astronomers are very excited now because on August 17th, they got to watch one happen. They actually got to watch a world End. Astronomers, for the first time in history, know what the end of the world actually looks like. Two dead suns, neutron stars, stars that have given all that they can give. Another word for a star, of course, is a sun. Uh, the closest star to Earth is our sun. Well, two of these suns that had expired over the course of a very long time, they cooled down and they condensed, what astronomers say, to about the size of New York City. And so when you're talking about something that is as large of our, as our sun, cooling and condensing to the size of something the size of New York City, it's very, very dense. A lot of matter, a lot of mass is contained in each one of these dead and dying neutron stars or old suns. And, now, and they've been circling around each other for a long time. And we didn't know it. We couldn't see it. But then they sent out a signal that the impact had happened. And this signal travels faster than the speed of light and actually bends the fabric of space and time. In 1916, Einstein said that when either a black hole collides with the dying sun or two dying suns collide, that it's possible that the power of that explosion would actually bend the fabric of space and time. Now, two guys won the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years ago. And we have since constructed sensors that can sense these kinds of explosions. Basically, there's one in Louisiana and there's one in eastern Washington state. And now there's one in the town of Pisa, Italy. Yes, the leaning tower of Pisa, Pisa, Italy. And they're called gravitational wave sensors. It's a big L-shaped structure, big long tube, about a half mile long, on two axes, an X-axis and a Y-axis, if you will. It does one thing. It shoots a laser down to the end of that half-mile tube, bounces off a mirror, comes back to the other end of that tube. 
is highly calibrated, filters out all obstructions from local noises and such. And what it senses is that when there's a massive explosion in the universe, two suns colliding, for instance, and the fabric of space and time is warped, it'll actually make the laser miss its calculated return destination from the mirror. It's so sensitive that it can sense one-tenth of a proton in difference. So what happened on August 17th is these two suns, these two neutron stars, the end of a world, the end of two worlds, they collided. The first indication that we had that this happened is that the entire L-shaped structure, about a half a mile, each leg of this L, one in Louisiana, one in Washington State, the entire structure stretched and collapsed by a tenth of a proton. Messed up the laser on its return journey. Got astronomers everywhere very excited. Because now they, because they could calibrate, now that they have three of these things set up, they could calibrate the quadrant of the galaxy with this gravitational wave of space-time, moving faster than the speed of light. Warp the whole structure in three different locations on the planet. They knew where to focus 270 telescopes that they were actually able to capture the gamma ray explosion of these two dead stars as they collided, the end of a world. Gamma rays, as everybody knows, is the most powerful form of energy that can be experienced, known to man. What Avenger was given his powers by gamma rays? Anybody? Everybody knows it's the Hulk. That's why he's the strongest of the strong. We can debate who wins with Superman and Batman and all that stuff, but when the Hulk shows up, he brings the thunder, doesn't he? Why? Gamma rays. That much is true. And so, we knew from the gravitational wave where to point the telescopes, and the telescopes grabbed the images of the gamma explosion. More power was emitted in a fraction of a second than the sun has emitted in its entire life cycle. That much power. The destruction of a world. For the first time in the history, we actually know what it looks like when a world is destroyed. It's pretty cool. Nothing survived, by the way. It's not possible for anything to survive that kind of destruction. And that leads me to Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <laughs> As we take a look at the metaphor that the Lord placed on Zephaniah's heart to describe an aspect of what Zephaniah refers to as the day of the Lord. Join me if you have your Bibles in Zephaniah chapter 1. Let's take a look at the first three verses here. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And you might have a paragraph description of the next couple of verses, and it says something like, the great day of the Lord is described in the next two verses. This is the Lord speaking. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. It's a work of anti-creation. This is what Zephaniah is describing. 
How bad does it get with the minor prophets? They have a lot of doom and gloom to say it gets really bad. <laughs> do they actually say that everything at some point is going to be destroyed? Yes, they do. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you're looking for a cool set of biblical verses to tattoo to the small of your back, I would recommend these verses. It's a real, it's a real conversation starter right there. Everyone thinks God is out to kill them and destroy everything, and you can prove it, because here it is. It's in God's holy word. Yes, the Bible actually says that at some point the world is going to end, a work of anti-creation is going to take place, and we know now what it looks like. It looks like a gamma ray explosion predecessed by gravitational waves that bend the fabric of space and time. Is it a comfort to know that we had a warning? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know. One aspect of the day of the Lord is the complete destruction of everything. That the Lord is going to bring justice to the planet, and it's going to be a work of purifying and cleansing that is absolutely horrible to imagine. This is what the Bible says. If you were to summarize Zephaniah chapter 1, as I do crassly, it's something like this. Everybody dies badly. That's Zephaniah chapter 1. It's known as the day of the Lord. Now, there's good thing for us. There's chapter 2 and there's chapter 3. The story doesn't end there. But this is where Zephaniah begins, that one day, everything as we know it is going to come to an end. Is this teaching reflected in the New Testament? Yeah, it is actually. The passage that we're going to be studying in the New Testament this morning is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where Peter is also talking about the day of the Lord. So let's take a look at what Peter says about the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Again, now again, there is no direct quote from the book of Zephaniah in the New Testament. However, the day of the Lord is a concept that was very familiar in a number of places to the New Testament authors. This is just one of them. Here's what Peter says, and it has everything to do with the sense of the day of the Lord, the complete destruction of the world, as you'll see here, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder so that you can remember the words previously spoken by the prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Here are the words join us on the screen. First, Verse 3, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They willfully ignore this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. Through these waters, the world at that time perished when it was flooded. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Is it the teaching of the New Testament that the world will end by fire and that everything will be destroyed at some point? Yes, it is. Just like Zephaniah prophesied in his book. In fact, Peter even gives us uh, something to pin this to in reality. He's saying, remember the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1? What was the first thing that happened? It was a separation of the atmospheric waters from the land-based waters. And there was a further separation of the waters from the land. Even as the world was created by a separation of the water, and then it was destroyed during the Noahic flood, 
Even so, the world will be destroyed a second time, except this time by fire. So Peter even goes into greater detail. Now, the only thing I can really even begin to use as a metaphor or an allegory for the power of the day of the Lord, when we're talking about a cleansing purification that leaves no survivors, is the time that my mom agreed to have a Tupperware party at the house. That was a bad day for us George boys. Now, we were raised in a very egalitarian household. We have no sisters, which meant everybody did all the chores. Didn't matter what the chore was, there are no such thing as girl jobs or boy jobs. And to this day, we raise our family the same way. And I think that's just the best way to look at the world. There's no such thing, except for having kids, that's a girl job. There's no such thing as girl jobs and boy jobs. So when mom decided that she was going to invite all of her friends and aunts and over for a big Tupperware party, this was in the mid to late 70s, maybe the early 80s. There was a day of cleansing and, and purification at the George household like nothing we'd ever seen or experienced since then. And there was no escaping. It didn't matter where mom turned to look, it was not clean enough. It didn't matter how hard you scrubbed or how hard you worked or how good of a job you thought you did, the answer was do it again, do it better. It was a day of cleansing and purification because there was a day of judgment coming, which was other women who were not going to spare in their judgment of Judy's house, which fell directly on the workforce, which was, of course, the boys. So I know it's a little silly, but you know what I'm talking about, where this is the kind of cleansing and purification. Your children feel this way when you ask them to clean their room. It doesn't matter how much time they spend in there cleaning their room. They know that the second you walk in, you're going to find something that does not please you. And there's going to come a judgment and a reckoning and more cleansing and purification. And it feels like it's never going to stop. It feels like we're going to be destroyed before the actual time of judgment ends. Well, it's a goofy metaphor, but it's the closest I can come. Also, I'm trying to just lighten it up here a little bit, because who wants to preach this passage? Absolutely nobody. <laughs> nobody that, no normal person, anyways, wants to get up and talk to good, Jesus-loving people about the end of everything that we know, and it's going to be by fire, and it's going to be bad. But this is what the text says. The metaphor of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. And that one of the things that comes with the day of the Lord is a sense of everything that displeases them. Is, uh, everything, actually, is, is going to end. Because the new can't come until the old is gone. And if you just focus on the new without talking about the destruction of the old, then you aren't being faithful to the message of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah chapter 1 begins with the complete destruction of everything. It's an aspect of the day of the Lord. However, as you move through the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2 gives us hope that some will survive. That even though God says that everything is going to be destroyed, there is going to be a divine copy and paste. That there are a group of people who are going to be preserved from this judgment that are going to survive. And then chapter 3 actually celebrates the day of the Lord as a time of tremendous blessing, where the Lord pours down incredible blessing and delight and peace. On his people. Take a look at this in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's a second aspect of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 say this Gather yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation. 
before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. He's saying, listen and listen now before it's too late and there's no more listening. Because he says this, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah goes on to preach in his second uh, chapter that the humble will survive the day of the Lord. Is this reflected in the New Testament teaching? Let's take a look at 2 Peter, continuing in chapter 3. We find this recorded in verses 8 and 9. That we begin to see that the entirety of the message found in the book of Zephaniah is that the day of the Lord is a day of justice, destruction, but it's also a day of salvation for those who are humble. Listen to what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Just like Zephaniah, Peter in chapter 3 of 2 Peter begins with the description of the end of the world as we know it, but then in verses 8 through 9 says, please understand that it hasn't happened yet. And there is only one reason that it hasn't happened yet, and that is because the Lord is patient with us, and he desires everybody to seek him, to come to him with repentant faith, saying thank you that everything hasn't ended yet. We appreciate that. We are giving ourselves to you. We are trusting in your, our, your love for us, and we're going to return our love to you. There is a way of surviving the day of the Lord. Anyone who preaches and teaches the Bible knows that the day of the Lord refers to the complete destruction of the first heaven and the first earth and the introduction of the second heaven and the second earth, that there will be a divine copy and paste. And those that are divinely spared the destruction of the first and life eternal in the second are those who, according to Zephaniah, are humble, according to Peter, are repentant. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. And it became crystallized, of course, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason the first hasn't happened yet, nor the second, is because God is patient and wants his creation to seek him with repentant faith, to understand that his patience is another sign of his love. Yesterday we had the opportunity to go to 32 School Street for, School Street for the first time as a church to begin claiming the land that the Lord has provided for us. And it was a day of exploration. It was a day of just cutting down weeds and small trees. The goal of that day and other cleanup days that we're going to have as the year continues is to make the property look a lot different from the inside, but not look very different from the outside. Because here's what we know. There's no greater way to meet the neighbors than firing up a chainsaw. The second you fire up the chainsaw, property owners come out to find out what in the world is going on. It happened when we moved to our property in Putnam. That's how I met all of my neighbors. I went outside and started my chainsaw up, and here they come running. Wanted to make sure I knew where the property lines were and which were their favorite trees. 
on my property. What were their favorite trees? Hey, don't cut down those trees. I like those trees. I've been staring at them for quite some time now. I would appreciate it if you don't cut down your trees on your property because I like the way they look from my house. Same thing happened yesterday. We got to meet Yvette. She lives across the river, one of our new neighbors. Annette. Thank you. Who's Annette? Oh, we'll get to see more of her, I'm sure. There's not a single tree or plant on her property that's not a blade of grass, but she really likes looking at our trees. And so she took the opportunity yesterday to come over to begin pointing out which trees she didn't want us to cut down on our property because she was afraid that we were going to start dropping the mature growth. She didn't understand that our goal initially is to just cut down the little weedy stuff in the middle, change the way it looks on the inside before we start touching anything and how it looks from the outside. And so we had a good conversation about forestry management and tree health. Everybody understands that healthy trees get healthier when you cut down the dead trees next to them. And she was assured and was grateful for the time that she came over and spent with us yesterday. And Sure enough, there will continue to be more trees cut down on our property. But the question is, which trees survive? Well, it's pretty simple. Even Yvette understood which trees survive. The trees that are healthy. The trees that bloom first in the spring and hold on to their leaves the longest. The trees that have the smallest amount of dead branches. The trees that don't have damage from a lightning strike. The trees that don't have fungus issues. Because all those trees... The damaged trees that are right now growing up with the healthy trees, those damaged trees, they become more and more dangerous the more time goes by. They're called widowmakers. Why are they called widowmakers? Well, the first sign of a widowmaker is it's late to develop leaves in the spring, and it's the first to drop leaves in the fall. And then the death and the decay spreads out to the smaller branches, and you can see them sticking out like wisps of hair. And then as more time goes by, if the tree is not removed, the death and the decay spread until now you have actual branches and limbs that are actually dead in this tree. And it's called a widowmaker because when you finally go to the base of the tree with a chainsaw to do what needed to happen a long time ago, and you begin to run your saw and engage your bar into that tree and send the vibrations through that tree. And in the process of doing the right thing, those limbs and those branches can come down and hit the guy that's actually trying to do the right thing and make his wife a widow. So we have a number of widow makers on our property and those trees are going to get dropped and everybody understands that. The trees that survive are the ones with the fruit. The fruit, biblically, is humility and repentance. That is the fruit that covers us from the justice, from the vengeance of the Lord against sin. Repentant faith as expressed through humility. This is what Zephaniah is preaching in chapter 2, that the day of the Lord may be survived. Some trees will survive. We're not going to cut down all the trees. We're only going to cut down the widow makers. That's it. The only people that will suffer the Lord's vengeance are the ones that continue in their prideful, unrepentant lifestyle and refuse to acknowledge that the Lord is patiently waiting and has expressed his love for the planet through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And so, it is the day of the Lord is a day of justice, and it is a day of salvation. And then chapter 3 in Zephaniah couldn't be more different than chapter 1. Take a look at what he writes in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. It's almost like he took his meds or something. I don't know. 
But it, it couldn't be more different. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Listen to this guy. It's the same prophet. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. That's the final message of the book of Zephaniah. That the same presence of the Lord that is there for destruction is also there for comfort and protection of his people. It's an amazing message of joy. And this is exactly where Peter brings his text in 2 Peter chapter 3, concluding in verses 10 through 13. Listen to what Peter has to say about the day of the Lord. Understanding that it began with judgment, with the possibility of salvation by repentance. And here's his concluding thoughts. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed or made clear. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct, in godliness, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell. You know what that new galaxy looks like? The one that got destroyed on August 17th? We got signaled by the gravitational waves that literally bent the fabric of space and time, that literally expanded and compressed these half-mile-long structures located in Louisiana and eastern Washington State. And then astronomers were able to watch the gamma ray explosion happen. You know what that galaxy looks like now? It's about a hundred times the mass of the Earth. And what happened during that gamma ray explosion is that at a subatomic level, protons and neutrons and electrons were so heated and so much power was infused into them that it birthed heavy metal. I'm not talking Iron Maiden. Dial it back. 70s child. Where's Sabalesky? Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Dial it back. I'm not talking. I'm talking about actual heavy metals. We know where gold comes from. We know where uranium comes from. We know where platinum and silver come from. We've seen it for the first time. There's about a hundred times the mass of the earth of heavy metals was created in this new solar system now. And about ten times the mass of the earth is pure gold floating in space. It is a galaxy of precious metals now, waiting to be formed into new planets. It's absolutely, the only thing that survived was what was created at this moment of destruction, but it was also a moment of creation. And the ring on your finger was formed the same way. That's where gold comes from. It's not a product of a volcano. 
It's not a product of pressure in the earth like coal and gas and oil. It's a product of a gamma ray explosion. And there's ten times the mass of the earth of gold floating 100 million light years away. And astronomers saw it happen. It's absolutely amazing. It's beyond anything we could ever picture or imagine. And what the Lord says is that when it comes time for a new heaven and a new earth, that even as this creation of a new galaxy is now solely comprised of precious heavy metals, that a new heaven and a new earth that will be solely comprised of people who love the Lord that are completely free from sin. No base element will be found in this new heaven and this new earth at all. The joy of that awakening, the joy of that moment, is, can't be described or compared. But yet we've seen what actually happens now when two dead stars collide, that the Lord turns into a galaxy filled with gold and platinum and uranium and precious metals. What do you think is going to happen when he removes from us everything that displeases him and does a divine copy and paste and places it in his new heaven and his new earth? It is going to be like a galaxy made cold, except it will be comprised of those who know and love him with repentance and humble faith here and now, while there is still time, while he is patiently waiting. I like to ask my favorite worship team in Eastern Connecticut to come and Help me wrap up our time together this morning. Talk about pure gold, huh? Was that awesome this morning or what? Yeah. We're talking about the day of the Lord. So the day of Vince and Trish and Kathleen and all the old people on the worship team. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for you guys. <laughs> No, we're not part of you guys yet. We're very grateful for your leadership, but we're very grateful for the Lord doing something new as well. So here's the application for this morning's message. The best way to be able to focus on the joy and the power and the beauty of the day of the Lord, understanding that it's going to come through a day of terrible destruction, is to have a personal day of the Lord. This is what the Bible preaches. But there have been many examples of days of the Lord throughout history while we wait for the ultimate day of the Lord. And yet I would say that the most powerful day of the Lord that we can experience until the end of time is when someone comes before the Lord and says, Father, like a burnt out star, I have nothing to offer you. But I want to collide with your grace. I want to collide with your love. I want to collide with your presence. And I want to be recreated into something that I can't even begin to imagine. All I know is that it begins with repentance and humility. And I place my life in your hands. We know that the New Testament teaches that it's a prayer something like this. Heavenly Father, I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that your son Jesus paid the ultimate price, he too suffered the effects of what should have been my day of the Lord when he died on the cross for my sin. Doing no wrong. He was a star who was bright, but who gave himself for me. I acknowledge that sacrifice 
some of us, we might feel like those that Peter describes in the beginning of this text, and we say, oh my goodness, years come and years go and nothing changes. How long are we going to put up with the same old, same old? It's probably an opportunity of repentance for us, isn't it? Because we've seen what it looks like with the new act of creation. We actually have records now of space and time being bent. We've actually seen what a gamma ray looks like. We can actually measure the amount of gold a million light years away. It's probably time for us to soften our hearts once more and turn to the Lord and say, you know what? I'm sorry, Father. Even though it feels like it's a long way out, it's coming. It's not a time for me to be anything other than about your business. Because I know for those of us who are men and women of faith that we may have made our decisions a long time ago. And it feels like we spent an awful long time waiting. You know who's been waiting even longer? Your Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. He's okay with waiting if we need to keep coming to Him in repentance. And so this morning we'll have an opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray with us. I encourage you, man and woman of God, to renew your faith. And if you're not a Christian, to have your own personal day of the Lord. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into a difficult text. Thank you for the Bible that leads us and gives us more information about what this day of the Lord looks like. May we be humbled and repentant based off of what we'll find in your word, Father. For those of us who are not Christians, Father, we pray that we would turn to you with repentant faith and humble ourselves and place ourselves in your hands and allow you to create us anew. Father, for those of us who have known and trusted you for a long time, would you refresh us and revive us with the hope of what is going to come and motivate us to serve you well while we wait. We ask these things in Jesus.